Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Deal Us In, a women in private equity and finance podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Today, we're talking to Visanta Pundarika and Amanda Thompson, each co-head of healthcare investment banking at Matrix Capital Markets Group. Welcome, Vasanta and Amanda. Would each of you like to take a few minutes to tell us about yourself? Great. And Kelsey, thank you for having us. We're both excited to be here today. I'm Amanda Thompson, as Kelsey said, the co-head of healthcare investment banking at Matrix Capital Markets Group. Vasanta and I have worked together for the past 16 years, all in healthcare investment banking. We started at a boutique firm called Shattuckham and Partners, and that was then acquired by Morgan Keegan. And later on, Raymond James acquired Morgan Keegan. So we were with the same healthcare investment banking group for about 14 years. Until August of 2020, we formed the healthcare investment banking group at Matrix Capital Markets and have been growing it ever since then. In terms of what we focus on, we focus on healthcare services and managed care. And when it comes to services, we really mean hospitals and healthcare systems academic medical centers, a lot of ancillary services such as dialysis and imaging, post-acute and long-term care. We do physician services and then managed care. So across the healthcare services spectrum and managed care. Amanda, did you leave out behavioral health just so I would have something to add to that introduction? Since our background is very similar, I left something for you. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, back to what we actually do for those companies. A lot of the work we do is both in the M&A side or transaction side, as well as capital markets advisory. And M&A, we work both on the sell side, although we work a lot with founder-owned businesses in the sell side aspect of that, but also for companies looking to grow, we work with buy side advisory. And then capital markets for both non-for-profit and for-profit companies as they're looking to grow perhaps build a new wing or acquire additional businesses, we advise on that side, as well as strategic advisory, which is all-encompassing. This is Asanta Fundarika. Great to meet you, Kelsey. And and as Amanda said, we have worked together for the last 16 years. So the history and background is the same for me as Amanda. We're very excited uh, to be at Matrix now and growing and building a brand new healthcare group at Matrix. Matrix as a firm has been around for for 33 years, I believe. And we are excited to be there on that platform with a long history of you know, advisory-based work, kind of building our healthcare group on, on, on top of that long history. Um, so it's fun and exciting to be building a new group and really you know, challenging. And, and we were look, both looking forward to that next challenge. Although a lot of people think we're nuts to start a healthcare group in the middle of COVID. I can understand that sentiment. Although I think it depends on really the sector, right? Um, mm-hmm. But at any rate, it sounds like you both have worked together so long. That's what's so interesting about your relationship and your in your work, among other things. What both attracted you to deal work and 
also concerned you about getting into deal work? For me, in terms of deal work, what really attracted me to investment banking was the healthcare aspect of it. And I was a biology major in college, so it was a transition for me to get into the finance world. And I really wanted to have one foot in in the hospital healthcare system area. And I remember one of my first deals, luckily enough, it was in New York City where I was an analyst. We were working with a hospice company downtown. And so I had the opportunity to go and really see the impact of a potential transaction and what the buyer could bring. So it wasn't only financial modeling, but it was able to see the patients and a tangible effect that the deal structure really gives. You know, I came at it from a different angle. Um, I wanted something that was fast paced, how to drive, um, and that was both analytical, but also required creativity. I really love that problem solving aspect of, of deal work. But I completely agree, Amanda, is that rewarding feeling when a transaction closes is uh, so attractive. Um, and you, you kind of, uh, I think we all thrive on that, um, whether it's, you know, seeing what the effect is on patients or whether it's, you know, a founder that has built up a business over, you know, 50, 20 years. And now, you know, they've told you all of the you know, struggles that they've gone through as a family to build up a particular business. And now they're getting to reap the benefits of that reward. You get to see it up front and, and close. There's, there's something very tangible about uh, working in, in healthcare and, and doing deals um, in healthcare. As far as what concerned me, I, you know, we started off and, you know, a few years in, very, very short few years in, suddenly it was a financial crisis. And so it, the fact that it isn't a steady environment, you know, was something that was initially concerning um, at that point, but it's also something that I thrive on. And as we, you know, build up success within that uh, environment that isn't a steady environment, it is uh, much, much more exciting. Um, so thrive, is, I guess it's, it's something that I thrive on, but it is also something that initially concerned me. I agree. I think when I initially started, I didn't have a lot of concerns just out of naivete, but the fact that we hit the financial crisis two years into our careers really gave some justification to have concerns and the ability to navigate and take on more responsibility ultimately during that crisis really helped my career go along. But again, with what Vasanta said, it is thriving in an environment of change and being able to adjust to that can be a concern and also can reap benefits. I know it's like <laughs> the financial market changed and then healthcare changed. It's like things were constantly changing uh, all the time on us. So, you know, figuring out how to thrive in that and then that's what helped us be successful. Which leads perfectly into the next question, which was what are some strategies that can help women advance in their organizations? And it sounds like one of those strategies is being on top of changes as they occur and responding to them and trying to find a, a place and a nexus in that new terrain. Absolutely. You have to be willing to kind of roll with the punches as things are changing around you. And you have to be on top of what is changing around you um, and how it's affecting not only your business, but also your client's business. In fact, that's the most important thing. How is it affecting your client's business and, and how can you help them as the world around them is changing? You know, a lot, of, there were some pretty landmark and big changes within the healthcare industry. You know, maybe we were three, three, four years in at that point. And so trying, figuring out how those are affecting our clients and how we can then help them navigate that has, has just been very important. People say this a lot, but if, if you're a woman in 
finance, you need to be smarter, you need to be more knowledgeable, and you need to be willing to work harder at every single step along the way. And that is absolutely true. Um, you are going to be more confident, feel more confident if you know more than everybody else in the room. And I think that um, has always been important throughout, um, as well as being as things are changing around you, that doesn't change the fact that you need to be bolder and, and take more risks and be willing to put yourself forward and put not only yourself, uh, but also your team uh, and kind of pushing, pushing your team along with you or pulling your team along with you. That I think is really important. People who work for you um, will appreciate that. And I think that's something, Amanda, that we have always found if we're advocating for ourselves and each other and for people that are also working with us. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that was one of the strategies that we both likely used in terms of advancing as women was not only you know, growing with each other, but helping the younger bankers and being mentors to interns and analysts as they grew in their career. So it's not only advancing for yourself, but really helping the team grow and impacting the culture of your environment. And, and that being said, I think the flip side is also important is really finding a mentor or someone above you that you can look towards or observe their skill set, if you will, and have them guide you along your career. But as a woman, I would say being nimble and knowledgeable, as Vasanta said, is key. And then also being an advocate for yourself and making sure that you're not looked over, perhaps. It also sounds like Amanda and Vasanta, you have found, you know, a connection in each other and in maybe being there for one another throughout kind of the last 16 years as, as you've gone through different stages in your careers and that not just the mentorship role, but kind of that both mentorship and kind of just being with your colleagues that are in similar situations and finding those relationships can be really helpful in your success or in your, in strengthening kind of um, putting yourself out there or taking risks. Have you found that to be the case as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say entirely. I think early on in our careers, we learned a lot from each other. We were also focused on different sides of the business at times. So we were able to bounce ideas off each other and grow together. And that's morphed and changed throughout our careers in terms of learning from each other, being able to take risks because you know you have somebody that's supporting you as well. And also the trust. You know, if you can find people within your organization or people that are doing something similar to you that you can absolutely trust, that is not only positive and beneficial for you in your, in your own career, as we have both found, but it's also something that's really helpful when we're working on, you know, stuff for clients because, you know, they're getting multiple different perspectives. They're getting different ideas. Um, we're always in communication. So there isn't something lost in translation on, on, on that front. Different people understand things differently. So if you're seeing, seeing things from multiple different fronts, um, that's that's always really helpful. We have, we've worked together for 16 years, but we also have very different opinions on things. And we are very different as people, um, as you may have realized in the last few minutes. And so I think that really goes a long way towards helping our clients. And the other thing is on, on the mentoring side, that has just been so rewarding. Uh, there was one point, maybe 10... 12 years ago, where we, you know, we wanted to be in charge of everybody younger than us. And we asked for that and um, made it happen. And that has been really, you know, really helpful over the years, because I think it has put us, it put us in a position where when we wanted to 
go out and you know find a platform where we could start our healthcare group, there was all, already this aspect of managing people that we had spent so many years um, honing in our skills and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And the most rewarding part of that was, you know, a director that we had worked with for, I think, over a decade before. Um, she came back and joined us and joined our healthcare group at Matrix. And so that that was just very exciting for us because it's a testament to uh, what we want to be and what we want to build, as, as, you know, as our group. And I think that history, both the history that Vasant and I have together and with the director that came and joined us again, is really being able to trust each other with our ideas and our differences of opinion, because that's how clients clients grow from that as well. You just don't have one singular focus, but three different opinions that we are okay with our differences in order to find the right outcome and the best solution moving forward, which I think is what a great team is made of. And, and clients love it too. Some One client that sometimes is, he, he's amused by asking different people, you know, well, what do you think? Because he wants to know, you know, if we disagree with each other, he wants to know why, um, and which, which is, you know, as clients get to know us, they see that we have sometimes different opinions, but we'll, we'll work together and end up with what we think is the best solution for the client. Um, and ultimately, I think that's the most important thing. That's so important to have a team that you trust and that you can rely on and then to to really be able to kind of game plan together and not, you know, you know, one person's not always the person kind of like taking the lead and saying, this is the best idea. It's a collaborative effort to determine what's really going to be a good fit for the client, including the client in that conversation, not just kind of being prescriptive with, with what you think the correct option is, but what the totality of the options could be and what fits for that client best. That's such a good approach. And it sounds like you've got a really good team together uh, to do that. Another question I wanted to ask you was, how has your background and experience prepared you to be effective in what can sometimes be a challenging environment for women and women of diverse backgrounds? So I, I think when it comes to my background, a lot of it is from growing up playing <laughs> team sports. I think being able to interact with people in a team environment of diverse backgrounds, knowing you have the same goal ultimately of winning, but learning how to be around people, empathize with people, uh, struggle with people and, and let them see and hear your voice through a team environment really helped me. And then when it comes to the banking world, a little bit of a difference. I do have an older brother. And I think being around a, a male-centered or, or concentrated role for a lot of my period growing up didn't make me feel like investment banking was that much different. Now, I think today's world has changed and there are more and more females and women in the banking world. But when I was an intern and an analyst, there were very few and far between. I was lucky enough, as we've discussed, to start in an analyst group of Four, where Vasant and I were two of four and were women. So that really did help us along. But I think growing up with, a, with an older brother really helps me enter the world without fear um, in terms of a male-centric environment. I think sports, um, for, for me too, you know, I've played sports throughout growing up. And so if you start off, it starts you up with this mentality of, you know, if you lose a race, then you analyze it, you figure out a new game plan, and then you race better for the next one. Um, I had a coach once that said, you know, good athletes have short-term, mem- good short-term memories. And I think that that's 
maybe not quite the the approach in banking. You you want to not just brush it off, but also figure out you know what you can do better the next time. But I think I, I think that just sets you up in the, in a position where you know how to work in a team and you know how to be effective in tough situations and you know how to kind of figure out and navigate those tough situations because there's a lot of people in this industry that try to strong arm you so if you are somebody who feels strong then you won't get strong armed but also as far as being different in the room you know I think for me I'm used to always being different in the room as this how it's always been growing up and so you know, now, as Amanda said, there is there's still there's a lot more women than there used to be, but there's still a lot of situations that we're in where there's more men. And, you know, it's something that you notice, but it's also something that you're used to. And so you can navigate it. And so, you know, that experience of growing up being different in the room, maybe a lot of science classes and math classes and things like that growing up, as well as just being different. So now, you know, at this point, you notice it, but you don't, it doesn't hinder you. That makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense. When I was growing up, I hit six foot when I was 11. Um, (laughs) So it wasn't just being the girl in the room, it was being the really, really tall girl in the room, like a foot and a half taller than the teacher. It felt like it sometimes and I possibly that was the case. And also being a nerd, you know, so I think being a ultra tall nerd really helped going into situations like that, where you're, you know, maybe you're the only woman in the room, maybe you're the only, only person like you in the room with a certain idea or whatever. And I think that always is helpful because it takes anything like that takes adjustment. And the more exposure you have to it, the more comfortable you'll be in those situations. Um, And the Mm -hmm. easier, you know, it should be for you to acclimate and find find your footing and find your voice and not be afraid to use it. So that's really great <laughs> to hear. I think that's exactly right. It's like, it, it, you know, adjusting to the situation becomes something that you're used to, not something new that you're having to adjust to because you're used to adjusting. You're used to, you go to a conference, there's many, many men in the room and then you, it's just, okay, we, we need to adjust to the situation and continue on. It's not, uh oh, here's the situation. It's more about okay, adjust, like the idea of adjusting becomes something that you're very used to doing. So I completely agree. Probably to a point where you don't even realize that you're doing it. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just something that becomes unconscious, perhaps. But um, at any rate, one of the other questions we wanted to ask was, do you think that there are any benefits to being a woman in the industry? I do. I think there can be several benefits of being a woman in the industry. One of the most prominent may be the emotional intelligence that women have. And as we all know, the deal cycle can go through many ups and downs, almost like a roller coaster. So being able to navigate that with your clients and really understanding their outlook, um, what their ultimate goals are, but how to get them there in an understanding way. And also, in pitches, for example, being able to read the room and really see who's looking for what and step back and, and listen a little bit more. I think women do have that advantage to their ultimate mentality. Yeah, I think we work in healthcare, so we work with a lot of physicians and other founders that 
have built up a business for a particular reason and they've not done a transaction before. And so what Amanda was just talking about, that emotional intelligence becomes very important um, as you're walking them through a, a transaction because it's the first time they've ever seen it. And our services, the way we approach advisory is very, very high touch. And that really lends itself to those types of founder-owned businesses. I think also in addition to that, um, juggling multiple things at once, there's always there's, there's always needs to be about 15 different things going on at any given time. And being able to juggle all, all, all of those things uh, at the same time is, is an advantage. You know, people remember you, you know, they've, maybe they've had conversations with, you know, different sets of bankers all day long, and they've probably had conversations with a lot of males and then they meet the two of us and, and, uh, or the three of us, depending on where we are. And we're the uh, ones that they'll remember because our meeting was the one that was different. So that goes back to needing to be smarter and more knowledgeable. What we were talking about before, because if you do say something silly, Kelsey, they'll remember that too. So you need to make sure that you are saying something smart, but they will remember you. And that is an advantage. Those are all, all really good points. I think the emotional intelligence uh, point that you both made um, is also is probably one of the things I see the clearest on my side of things we're often working on the buy side of deals. Um, we work on sell side as well, but on the buy side, especially when you're dealing with founders opposite and maybe they're picked legal counsel that's not as experienced with deal work or something like that. There's so many egos and so many different parts of that to navigate. And you want to be sensitive to this is something that someone's built and that they are maybe more or less interested in staying on with for a period of time or indefinitely in what's really important to them, both for negotiation and for not kind of scaring someone off. I think that tailoring deal documents goes pretty far in that respect. You know, if it's right sizing them to the deal and not having something that's, you know, for a relatively small deal, but is going to scare someone and think, oh, I can't possibly imagine going through this whole process, whether that's the diligence request list or that's the initial draft of the purchase agreement, just making it an accessible process for both sides of the deal goes so far in keeping everyone aligned um, throughout. I completely agree with you. We've been there many times and it's really the way you introduce the heavy topics or the heavy lift, including a due diligence request list that's the first time many of these smaller founder-owned businesses have ever received a list that's also you know, very intrusive, they find. So it's, it's how you get across those points. And I think emotional intelligence does help, help with that. Yeah, there's something about asking someone. It feels like asking someone very personal questions, right? But it's just, it's just business questions. But it's about how they've been running things for so long that it can be something that you need to be a little bit delicate about in asking them the right way. You still need to get the information, but thinking about what information you really need, how much of it you need, and how to phrase that question without coming off of someone that's second guessing a business that frankly, as an attorney, they know way more than I will ever do, ever will about their business, you know? Um, I'm not, yeah. I'm not involved in a factory or dealing with their workers day to day or know what their employees care about in terms of benefits. 
I need to learn that from the sell side. But mm-hmm. at any rate, uh, I think that's all really, really helpful. I think it goes back to prepping your clients. And, you know, we try to ask a lot of those questions um, up front so that they're prepared. And so that when the other side asks the questions, it doesn't feel as much like they're poking around and they're trying to get you or trying to feel like you did something wrong or something like that. You know, we had a client three or four years ago who said, uh, you know, when they ask questions, it makes me feel like we did something wrong, but I don't think we did. Um, I just don't like the way they ask it. And the way we were asking them, we had asked all the same questions and when you just asked it in a different way um, and gotten the same answers, they just didn't feel as uncomfortable when we asked them. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that's critical. I mean, and much appreciated when you're on the buy side. Um, If you have someone coaching on the sell side a bit and letting their client know kind of what to expect, right? It's just like we're all learning from our clients on the business side of things. Um, They're learning from us in some ways on the on the deal process side of things and what's kind of market and what's to be expected and any preparation is, you know, I think helpful on both sides. My next question for you is our signature question. And that's what advice would you give your younger, say 22 year old self? And I know Amanda, you were just coming from a biology degree probably then. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Visanta, you were coming from an anthropology degree. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. So, and I was coming from pre-med and anthropology. So kind of a mix of both. <laughs> but what, what advice would you give yourself at that, at that age? I think at that age, when things changed, it felt monumental. Um, and every, every time something changed, you know, in the market or in healthcare, um, it felt extremely monumental, like this is the big change. And then another one happened and then another one happened. So I think, you know, over time, as we've talked about adjusting and rolling with the punches are all things that we've learned. But I would tell my 22 year old self that the world is going to keep on changing around you and you figure out how to navigate it. And that's how you will succeed. Yeah, I think I would tell my 22 year old self that it's okay to have a voice at the table and that relationships really are paramount when it comes to investment banking. So I probably started off investment banking a little more on the analytical behind a computer screen side than really voicing my opinion as much as I could have. So I think I would, I would look back and tell my 22 year old self to, to really be a little bit more outspoken than I perhaps was. And speaking, I guess, of changing environments, um, do you see any upcoming trends in deal activity what do you anticipate and why do you why do you think that's up coming up the line? Well, in terms of healthcare deal activity, the, the market has been very active even throughout COVID minus the first initial deal the first initial slowdown. After that, there have been many transactions. But given the after effects of COVID, I think the home healthcare market will really see continued drive in multiples and a number of transactions. And not only home health, but really moving into hospital at home, a lot of academic medical centers, large health systems, as well as for-profit companies are trying to navigate how to move into hospital at home. And I think that will result in partnerships as well as transactions and deal activity as people try to corner the market 
in terms of knowledge and skill set. And then also everyone is focused really on employees right now and, and being able to attract employees. So that that is really a focus in home health as well. So I think some of the transactions may be driven by staffing needs. And then coming out of the pandemic, one of the after effects is really related to mental health and mental health and substance use disorder. And private equity has been focused on behavioral health for the past five or six years, if not more. But I think coming out of the pandemic and as the industry is still fragmented, there'll be more and more focus on platform behavioral health transactions as well as tuck-ins. And those are the two main, I think there'll be a lot of activity, but those are one of the two main subsectors I foresee will be impacted in the near term. Yeah, I agree. I think there's going to be continued um, strong deal activity in healthcare. Uh, there's a lot of founders that are ready to exit. They've, they're seeing an opportunity to capitalize on the business they've built up, um, given all the challenges that are coming around. Amanda, you talked about staffing and labor. We have had so few conversations over the last few months that somebody didn't say staffing is their biggest problem. In fact, I can only think of one one right now. Everyone else is really focused in on that, um, as well as increased costs. Businesses are, are seeing you know, a real increase in that, and that's making margins thinner and, and making it more difficult for some of these founders. And so as they see opportunities to exit as, as private equity you know, continues to be interested in, in growing those businesses, especially in, as you said, Amanda, home health and post-acute care and, and behavioral health. And I think generally anything that's outside of the hospital setting, people are more interested in that. Um, on the physician practice side, we're hearing a lot of interest in cardio and, and radiology, and especially in cardio, that's a little bit different than uh, where the trend has been recently. So that's, that's going to be interesting to watch. There haven't been as many mega mergers uh, this year as, as there have been in prior years, but we'll see, we'll see how things uh, progress uh, in 2022. Um, interest rates have gone up pretty significantly over the last few months. Um, and it's 10-year treasury yields are what, like 285 yesterday. Um, they were um, you know, in the 160s at the beginning of January. So that's a 120 basis point increase in just a few months, um, which is pretty, pretty significant. So you know, as those interest rates go up and it becomes more expensive for smaller companies to borrow capital to grow, um, and they have to, you know, kind of look towards equity or for larger companies, you know, if their capital becomes more expensive, they might want to sell off pieces of the business to, to redeploy that capital elsewhere. So I think completely agree. I think the deal activity in healthcare is going to continue to continue to be robust. Yes, I think that's a good point that it comes on, on both both sides of the transaction. Founder owned businesses, given market dynamics, are more interested in potentially pursuing a transaction or seeing this as a as a good time to seek valuation and look at what the market conditions are, as well as on, on the buy side, there's opportunity and need uh, for these services. And perhaps valuation multiples can be debated whether they're going up or will stay stagnant, but the need for the transaction and the growth there. So it is both on the, the sell side and, and the buy side. That's really interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought about how how some of those different conditions might lend founders to be thinking more about getting additional capital or seeing an opportunity to maybe uh, become part of 
a larger um, company or institution or a grouping. That's really neat. And those areas are, are interesting too. What do you think is the, the reasoning for moving away from hospital? Uh, and maybe it's just more focused on these areas rather than hospital related deals or the hospital setting, but is there, you know, I would think that some of these factors are similar across these different, different fields. Well, no, I think with, with, with hospitals, um, there's a few different things that are kind of slowing down that, that deal activity. Um, I think one, just the last decade, there have been a lot of hospital consolidation transactions um, and there are less of them like, available to consolidate at this point. And so a lot of those are in markets where the federal government doesn't like it so much. And so some of those transactions have been blocked uh, and, and so people have walked away from them. But also a lot of, you know, hospitals, there's a little bit of a haves and have nots coming in and out. I think we wrote about this a year ago, but coming out of the early part of the pandemic, those hospital companies that had a lot of money kind of came out of it with a lot of money. And those that didn't have a lot of money are you know, had a Band-Aid for a couple of years, but now are continuing to, you know, struggle. And so it's just a, a bit of a difficult um, environment for a lot of hospitals. They're certainly experiencing the staffing shortages. They're, they're certainly, you know, experiencing a lot of what we're seeing in the labor market with, you know, behavioral health companies or post-acute care companies. In fact, a lot of nurses and, and other, other caregivers have actually moved away from the hospital setting because they're burnt out and have moved into some of the lower acuity settings. So it is, it is certainly difficult for them. And, and as interest rates go up, um, it'll be difficult for, for those that are lower rated and where borrowing uh, at higher interest rates may not be something that they can afford as easily. They may be looking at M&A opportunities as well to, to redeploy capital throughout their, their networks. But I think generally speaking, as far as why a lot of people are interested in care outside of the hospital setting, I think a lot of that is, is has to do with kind of public perception of hospitals being where COVID was. And so there is an opportunity that a lot of people are seeing where you could, you know, a lot of that care that has been moved outside of the hospital setting or into the home or into other, other settings, um, there's an opportunity for, for growth there. And so I think, I think that those, those are some of the trends that are, that are happening. Amanda, would you agree? I agree. And I think Hospitals and healthcare systems were trying to move care into a lower cost setting for ages and moving care to ambulatory settings. But I think a lot of the more recent trends are patient driven as patients, like you said, viewed hospitals where COVID was um, as maybe as a more dangerous territory. And so they wanted care in the home. They want to go to smaller care settings. And so given that patients are preferring to be out of the hospital and a lot of times in, in the home, is really driving the volumes, and the, the volumes is where the deal flow tends to happen after. And I think for some of these founder-owned businesses, you know, as the market around them gets more challenging because private equity is very interested in healthcare, and as they're putting more and more money in, into growth um, around some of, these, some of these companies, I think they're in a position where they're trying to decide, you know, do we want to continue to grow? Do we find capital to grow or uh, is this our, our time to exit? And that's something that um, we are analyzing with a number of different founders. You know, is this the right time or is there 
more of an opportunity uh, for them to continue to grow. And a lot of that is driven by what the founders want. Do they want to exit now or do they want to wait to exit? So there's a lot of different factors at play. And there's, as Amanda said, we can debate about whether multiples are going to go up or down. And, and, you know, not all of these businesses are created equal. There's some of the subsectors or some of different factors within some of these businesses that would drive a multiple up, up or down. But there are a lot of really good healthcare businesses out there that um, are looking for what their next step is. That's a very interesting and very complex set of kind of layered factors contributing to those trends. Do you think that having more people working from home has contributed to kind of people staying in their homes, like their, you know, elderly parents, or whatever, staying in their homes longer because it's made some of the caretaking more accessible, like people can maybe take some time to do some caretaking or be at, you know, wherever the caretaking needs to be done so that maybe that's also contributing to kind of like a home health care hospital at home, kind of those, those factors complementing kind of this concept of, you know, wanting to stay away maybe from, unfortunately, the institutions that may have gotten a bad rap during um, COVID just because there were like aggregations of people together, hospitals, nursing homes, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, that has, um, that has contributed to it. People staying at home and, and, you know, pe- people staying at home has done a lot of things to our society. And that's, you know, something that Amanda alluded to earlier um, on the behavioral health side, it has really created a lot more challenges um, in our society on both mental health and substance abuse. So, the increase in, in demand on, in behavioral health is a really unfortunate and unfortunate for our society that that has been a byproduct, but there's also been a lot more focus on it. A lot of, you know, you're kind of seeing two things that were happening. One was people who were staying at home were able to observe those around them more, and especially kids, you know, teenagers that were being observed more by their parents because they were all at home together. But also on the flip side, if people were at home with abusers, then they were at home with those abusers. So there's there's two sides to that as well. But, you know, I do agree that um, some of the other dynamics at play in society have, have contributed to um, an increase in interest in, in home health on, you know, people staying at um, home longer because they didn't want to move into a long-term care setting or people being able to care for their loved ones at home more and, and needing, you know, home health as a supplement versus having to move them into a long-term care setting because they were also working from home. So they were able to have that flexibility. So that is interesting in the, in the market dynamics, um, but also in a lot of parts of the country, it has been difficult for people to buy smaller homes. So if they were looking to da- downsize, they weren't able to do that. So a lot of people have moved in. If they've sold their, their larger house, they've moved in with other people uh, because they weren't able to find a smaller house, things like that. So we, we talk a lot about different trends in healthcare and different you know, deal activity trends. Um, but a lot of the interest in where patients are going is driven by some of the societal trends that we see. Uh, and so that has been, and that has always been the, been the case, but it's, it's coming more to the forefront um, over this, these past uh, couple of years as you see what people are doing. And therefore, that's where you know, patient base is moving. And so, you know, private equity interest and the money kind of follows that, uh, you know, where the patient base is moving. So 
Um, it is certainly certainly an interesting time in healthcare. Yeah, I think it's the status of working from home has certainly impacted healthcare and perhaps interest in care at home. I think part of it has to do with you know not as many people working in general and having the ability to be at home and caretake for their elders in some instances. So it's an interesting dynamic. I agree with Vasanta. Really, society drives societal trends drive where healthcare is provided and the healthcare setting. So certainly the lockdowns and then a lot of working from home did drive care at home. And then by that, the interest in deals for home healthcare setting and hospital at home. And I think also there's, there are some regulatory factors at play as well. So, you know, in some states there, there is, depending on what the CON laws in those states are, if you want to grow um, and build something in those states, um, you might not be able to build a physical footprint. You might be able to, you know, work in home health, though. So there are some states where um, that's not as controlled by CON as as some of the other parts of the healthcare industry, for example. So there's there's a lot of, uh, as far as growth and, and the way people are growing you know, across the country, there's a lot of different roles in different states um, from whether a certificate of need or corporate practice of medicine or, or different things like that. Um, I think that also drives where people grow from a geographic perspective as well. So, yeah, it's cer- certainly an interesting time to be in healthcare, but I'm not able to think of a time it wasn't interesting to be in healthcare. But this is certainly a time that uh, is, is is more interesting. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of unfortunate things as well as positive trends as well. So it's it'll I think it'll continue to be interesting here for the next few years. Yeah, there hasn't been a time in our career where it wasn't interesting yet. So we do have that benefit of things always keeping us on our toes and changing. And our ability to be nimble is is key in this aspect. Yeah. Makes it more fun. Entirely. <laughs> I guess that's something I would have told my 22-year-old self is have fun while things are changing around you. That's a really good addition. I really like that one too. Not just kind of to be on the cusp of it, but to enjoy kind of for lack of a better metaphor, uh, kind of surfing the the outer part of what's new. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great. It's been such an interesting conversation, Amanda and Vasanta. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can see why your clients find you so helpful in navigating all of these different options and seeking your guidance on you know all of these different all the different trends, the options that they have available to them the different, you know, the decision whether to exit or whether it's time to grow. And so I'd encourage anyone that's thinking about it to reach out to to Amanda and Vasanta. And um, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Thank you very much, Kelsey. It was certainly our pleasure. It was enjoyable to talk to you. Thank you, Kelsey. Yes, this was fun. And it was enjoyable to go through, navigate our career path and then the trends in healthcare coming up. So thank you for that. Thank you both. and. To anyone listening, please join us for our next episode, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. 
by accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.